the topic tonight is well, we were talking about the fact that there's a total lack of education, and so we wanted to bring some topics to the forefront, not necessarily take a deep dive in every single one of them. We could decide to take a deep dive in one or two or three, but not necessarily yeah. all of them. But but the topics is if only I knew. If only I knew about team disposition, if only I knew about the rift torpedo, if only I knew about the CDA, if only I knew about pensions versus RSPs, if only I knew about RCA, if only I knew about passive income grind, if only I knew about tax on passive income inside the corp or the small business allowance or the erosion of that small business allowance because of TOPI. I think what we should talk about for sure, because I've ran into this today, like it breaks my heart, like it literally broke my heart. Is this is a joke? physician. Th this is a physician who reached out to me, you know, to the CPPP. And uh, so we started talking, we had a meeting today, so we can't really do the pension plan. Uh, but in talking to him and his accountant who was there online, you know, we said, well, you can't do the pension plan, but nothing stops you from doing the RCA, right. the retirement compensation arrangement. And and as we were talking, a few things, his his accountant says, well, he doesn't have a T4. He's always taken dividend. So if you've always taken dividend, you can't do an RCA. There is a very popular idiom that says ignorance is bliss. It used to say that a person who does not know about a problem does not worry about it. But I think this is wrong. It's equivalent to saying, you know what, I don't know about this new medication that will protect you against your kidneys and uh, heart attacks if you're a diabetic. Or it's someone saying, I don't think I need to learn about this new medication that will prevent you from having a stroke if you have atrial fibrillation. You know, I don't think that would go really, really well in our type of professions. And so ignorance is not bliss. And so if you never keep up with the news or don't care with the troubles that you're going to face financially, then you will not be able to deal with it uh, prophylactically or preventatively. And unfortunately, that could lead to you losing millions and millions over time. So ignorance is not bliss. You do not know what you do not know. And more importantly, your accountant does not know what your accountant does not know. And sometimes your financial advisors also don't. It is up to you to figure out what you need to know. If only I knew is a topic today learn about these concepts that maybe you've never heard of or even your accountant or advisor never told you about. But knowing these concepts are crucial to your financial future and the protection of your future self. How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals. 
where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Okay, so welcome back, everybody, to How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast, and I am your host, Vuketran. I am so happy to be back with you today. Today, we are back to discuss with Jamie List the topic of I Wish I Knew, a potpourri on different financial concepts. And let's get going. So now this is a good segue to talk about TOPI, Tax on Passive Income. So mm -hmm. we've gone from active income. We're going to talk about tax on passive income. So what is exactly tax on passive income or we commonly call TOPI? What is that? So tax on passive income is really just what it sounds like. And it is the, the amount of tax that you owe on the income that your company earns on passive and really we'll just call it passive investment activities. So dividends, interest, capital gains from an investment portfolio that's held inside the company. And let's keep it simple because you could also have real estate, et cetera. And there's some other items there that, that could be there, but just simply put that investment income is in a different silo. And so let's use that analogy. It's kind of helpful. It's in a different silo. And the more you earn in that passive silo, I'll stop there before we get there. It is, you should know that in a company in Canada, and then again, we're in Ontario, so we'll deal with Ontario rates just for, for simplicity. That passive income is going to be taxed at a flat rate. There's no marginal, there's no gradient. It's a flat rate of 50%. And so that is just, that just that's just part of the rules. Um, it's not good or bad. It just, it is what it is. To segue into the, how the two silos affect each other, the passive income grind. So that's another topic you say the pig. So now imagine that in silo number one, which is our active business income, we have a threshold at $500,000. Under that 12 and a half, 12.2%, above that 26 and a half percent. In our passive investment silo, as soon as we have $1 of income, we are reducing the level where the tax rate changes. It's, it's $1 above 50,000. Correct. My apologies. You're, you're absolutely right. Once there's 50,000, more than $50,000 of passive income, excuse me, every dollar over that $50,000 of income per year, so it's not cumulative, it's each year, each dollar over $50,000 will grind down that $500,000 threshold by $5. So I earn $1 of passive investment income over $50,000. And my, well, let's put it a different way. I earn $20,000 of passive income over 50. So a total of 70. My small business deduction goes from, I want to make sure I'm doing my math right. 20,000. Yeah. It goes from 500 to 400,000. And so once I'm earning a total of, uh, if I just want to make sure my math is correct here, once I'm earning a total of $150,000, uh, I have basically lost any um, positive or small business deduction or small business rate in my corporation. And and this is I, I this is how I understood it, and I think it's the simplest way to understand it is that the government has given you know small business uh, a certain tax rate, the preferential twelve point two percent tax rate, uh, because the government expects these corporations to make active income, 
And so they're giving them a preferential rate of 12.2. Otherwise, it would have been 26.5%. So, but most corporations, you know, by the fact that they want to make passive income, they invest passively and make income that way. And the government, at least the way I understand it, is saying, no, 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 no. The, the reason why I gave you a small discount is because I want you to make active income, not passive income. So if you make too much passive income, good for you. You've made a lot of money, but you really are endangering the discount that I gave you. And so the more you make an active in passive income, the more I'm going to take your discount on the active income. So by the time you make 150, which means 100 grand over the 50 grand, you take 100 grand multiplied by five because they claw back $5, you've essentially eroded the entire small business allowance. So at first dollar, so if you make 150,000 of passive income on the active side, on the silo side, at first dollar, you will not be taxed at 12.2%, but you will be taxed at 26.5%. So it's good that we make act that we make passive income, but we totally destroy the the active income silo. And so that's yeah. and the reason for that is because the government wants us to use small business to to produce active income as opposed to passive income. That at least that's in my mind, that's how I understand it to understand the concept. Absolutely. I mean, what they want you to do is is uh, is hire people, employ them, pay them, and they'll get the tax from them, right? So if you're you're an active business, you're producing, you know, you're 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 adding to the GDP of the country. If you're investing for your what is ultimately yourself, you're really producing far less economic benefit back to a the economy and b the government. So there is a logic to why that small business deduction is there. There is also a logic as to why it grinds down. Unfortunately, if we're successful at accumulating in our company, it's going to impact our ability to earn at those lower rates, um, which we can usually do right after we can right after we incorporate. But if you start to accumulate, and I just did a little bit of math here, so another yet another way of thinking about it is if I am saving money and accumulating money in my corporation, you know, by the time I have a million. And let's say I'm earning 5%. And let's say it's all interest income. So let's just say I buy a GIC. So if I have a million dollars, I'm earning $50,000 of interest income. It's not going to affect my small business rate. I'm still good. Now I get to 2 million. Now I've had a significant impact. Now I have lost half of my small business deduction because I've got $2 million invested at 5%. I'm earning $100,000 of passive income a year. And the grind at, at, a, at a five to one the $50,000 in excess of $50,000 means I lose 250 of the five. Again, taking that one step further, just to demonstrate it, $3 million at 5%, I'm earning $150,000 of interest income. I will have eliminated all of my ability to earn at that lower tax, that lower rate. And so in that example, my silo that I had at the beginning when we talked about uh, the progressive uh, small business rate concept is entirely, it's a silo that just earns at 26.5%. And there's nothing I can do about it. Well, there are things I may be able to do about it, but at that point, I'm now very significantly behind the eight ball. And I should have done planning ahead of time to reduce the impact of passive income on my company. Right. And so that that's that's the point. The point is there are some things you can do about it, and it all is in the planning. All is in the planning. And and to be honest, Jamie, the numbers that you gave are not unreasonable. 
um, a physician, a dentist who works really hard, uh, makes significant amount of income, and they've listened to their accountant very well. You know, they've taken a small salary, they've taken a small dividend, and left everything in a company to be invested. You know, very quickly they they can grow to the million, to the two million, to the three million that you're talking about. So someone like myself who's practiced 15, 20, 23, 25 years, it is not unusual to see those type of amounts being invested inside the company. And yep. so very quickly, if you've practiced 15, 20 years, you will face the pig, you will face the topi issues and the small business grind issue for sure. Yeah, no, I think it's it's uh, secret is 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 as long as you're living within your means, you're going to have to worry about this. That's the reality of, of where it is. Again, they're planning. So we've talked about a number of concepts already. So you could do, you know, you can we put a pension plan in place. It takes the money out of the company and invests it elsewhere. That the proceeds of that, which are passive income, accrue to another entity. That's helpful. Um, again, that's not something you can really do all at once. It's something you need to do progressively. And the pig, right? The income grind is something that happens a little bit insidiously over time. Yeah. Um, and it and it kind of comes back um, slowly to haunt you. Again, most tax planning, in fact, I would argue almost all tax planning is progressive. More importantly, doing things progressively over a long period of time tends to be A, these are statutory, i.e. rules-based, written into the Tax Act, baked into what we're allowed to do, structures. There's no risk uh, yeah. other than let's call the administration of your planning a risk. If you yeah. want to be, that would be the maximum risk of putting one of these in place. Other than that, you now have different places to invest your capital that are more tax efficient and more wealth accretive than just doing it all in one place. Again, with only one tax return, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Perfect. So now let's talk a little bit about these planning. And one of these planning within the corporation is a concept of the CDA, the uh, capital dividends account. Now, this is something that I would be safe to say 99.9% .9 of physicians do not know what it is, even though we have corporations. So let's let's dive into the concept, not necessarily the minutia of it, but what is a CDA and how does it help in the planning? The CDA, so I would say everybody understands the concept of the CDA, they just don't know it. When I personally, so we'll get to the CDA in a second, but just the setup is important because everybody knows that when you have a capital gain, I shouldn't say everybody knows, but people who have at least understand where their tax are coming from, if you have a capital gain, what happens is I bought my, let's say I bought a stock at $100 and I sold it for $200. My capital gain is the difference between what I bought it for and what I sold it for. So in this case, it's $100. In Canada, currently, the inclusion that I must take in my tax return for that capital gain is one half or 50% of the gain. And so I had a $100 gain, I have a $50 taxable gain. So most people understand that that is how capital gains work. And again, some people just are not aware of and don't have a sort of a sense of tax, but those who do would grasp that very quickly. It is a well-known. And, and the other way of thinking about it is most people will say, oh, taxes on my income at the highest rate in Ontario are 53%, tax on dividends is 40, and tax on capital gains is 26 and a half. That's actually not true. 
tax on your income is yes at 53 and dividends is around 40. That's true. Although there's other tax paid by the company tax on capital gains is at hundred percent, but you only, or sorry, it's at 53%, but you only include one half. So not to get, it sounds like I might be getting into the weeds and I'm not answering your question, but you do need to understand that concept to then understand the capital dividend account. The capital dividend account is while you're alive. So I'll get to one other item while you're alive is going to be the non-taxable portion of the capital gains. So in the personal example, I took 50, I took half of my gain and I just sort of threw it away. I.e. the tax, the tax preparer doesn't care. It's just gone. In a company, we track it. And every, every dollar of capital gains that's not taxed, so the non-taxable portion of capital gains, increases your capital dividend account. When you have a large enough capital dividend account, you are able to declare yourself a tax-free dividend. And so when we're doing investment planning, i.e. real-time planning with our clients, we can, and you like we go back to my example of a, we talk about investment accounts of one, two, and $3 million. You can generate capital dividends on a yearly basis to to pay tax for yourself. So that is the that's the that's the annual or or real time concern we have with the capital dividend, and it really is an opportunity we should manage towards. The second, and I would argue potentially more impactful benefit is uh, when you purchase life insurance in a corporation. The proceeds of the life insurance, with some adjustments, and we won't get into it. But the proceeds of the life insurance, when they pay into a corporation, they immediately increase the capital dividend account and allow you to pay a tax-free dividend to surviving shareholders. So when we have a corporation, when I, as a professional, I'm helping my clients plan with a company, a corporation, we are always aware of the capital dividend account because we want to create activities that allow us to create tax-free dividends in real time because it's fun to get, you know, you get a great big capital gain one year if you have a great year. Um, you can declare capital dividends of $25,000, $50,000 sometimes. By the way, sometimes you get none. Um, and then when we are doing estate planning, and more importantly, insurance planning inside of a corporation, you use that concept of the capital dividend account to help pay through the corporation the proceeds of insurance. And if done properly, I think this may be sort of a good way to kind of maybe kind of tie this up. It kind of, it kind of allows you to get the surplus that you've saved in your company out to your beneficiaries without paying uh, dividend tax on them. The CDA account is not a, it's not a, it's a, it's a credit. It's not a true account. We actually don't put money in it. It's just credits that accumulate. And so it's not money that you can use. It's money that you can take out if you pay yourself a dividend. And so as we're doing the planning, uh, whether it's on the corporate side or we're doing the planning on the personal side, taking into that, account that credit is extremely powerful i'm i'm glad we talked about it today because 99.9 percent of my colleagues have no clue what a cd account is because we've never really talked about it uh and we don't know that it exists but it's a very powerful tool if you're hearing about the cda account here for the first time i don't blame you but i do have another episode Uh, that was published in August 7, 2022, called The Capital Dividend Account, The Biggest Unknown Planning Opportunity for Corporations. So please go check out that episode that was uh, posted and published on August 7, 2022, for more and detailed information about The Capital Dividend Account.
So now I'm going to wrap this all back together, coming back to the first concept of deem disposition. Remember, we talked about deem disposition on the personal side, but you tell me, Jamie, that there's also a deem disposition on the corporate side. What did you mean by that? You know, like if you wanted to be very fair to the different planning strategies, there is also sort of a corporate torpedo. And uh, and so it could, without proper planning, kind of hit you the same way that that RIF RSP torpedo hits you with the caveat or the, the notable difference that you have a lot of planning options in your company that you do not have in an RSP. You know, what you just said there is so true. I mean, there is really no planning opportunities in the RRSP, but there are multiple planning opportunities inside a corporation, which still, in my mind, I'm not quite sure why advisors and accountants out there are still recommending physicians to stay in RRSP on the personal side and not plan for pensions on the corporate side. That, for me, seems like a no-brainer. If I was given the advice to incorporate and I followed some of the advice of kind of the stuff we've talked about today, but all I really ever did was pay tax at the low rate, saved money really wisely, saved, you know, used an RSP only, right? So I have enough to live and I've got, you know, multiple millions of dollars in my company the day that I pass away. So this is a problem with no planning. Problem number one is, now we talk about deemed disposition of the corporation, but really it is still back to the person. I own 100% of my company. I incorporated it for a dollar when I was in my, you know, let's say I'm 80 and I incorporated it when I was 40. I've got I'm just going to use round numbers. I've got a million dollars in that company. The shares of my company cost me zero dollars and I died owning them and they're worth a million. So I have to pay a tax on the deemed disposition of the shares in Jamie List Medicine Professional Corporation the day that I die. So that's that deemed disposition. Now that's not in the corporation. It's actually outside the corporation. But when we're doing corporate planning, we want to make sure that we understand that that is going to happen and we need to figure out ways to mitigate the effects of that. I th I, that's the last piece of deemed disposition, but there is sadly a, a one more tale that we need to tell. After the tax is paid on that million dollar deemed disposition, the company shares are in the estate. And then let's say they get distributed to, uh, let's keep it simple. So there's no other tax consequences. My best friend, Vu. So we're at arm's length, we're not spouses, we're not related in any way. So I give that company to him and I was I was nice enough to pay the taxes. So now Vu has a company that is worth a million dollars of cash and the tax is paid on the gain. I paid that. But the second tax that we have to worry about when we're planning is the tax that it costs to get money back out of that corporation. So now let's pull, let's say that I'm Clearly, although we really get along well professionally, I'm not going to give Vu my company when I die, but I give it to my kids. And I want them to be able to use it for their family, et cetera. For them to get that million dollars out of the company, it costs around 40 cents on each dollar. There are some tax adjustments that get to be made, so it's not quite as bad as it seems. But what ends up happening is that with no planning, when you own a corporation, to get all the money out, it can cost upwards of, believe it or not, 60% tax on the money that's in the company. Again, with no planning. There are lots of easy, again, 
I'll call them, they are statutory available planning options that you should explore with your advisors, both accounting and planning advisors to make sure that this stuff doesn't happen. But there is a very big torpedo available for you if you are not paying attention to how to plan for your company, both in the deemed disposition of your corporate shares, but then also the ultimate distribution or dilution or wind up of your company, assuming that no one's going to take over your medicine professional corporation for another purpose. So let me throw this out there and I'm not, we're not going to go into detail because we just don't have the time, but let me throw this out there because we've talked about different solutions. We've talked about pensions. So in my mind, the pension inside the corporation, sorry, I shouldn't say inside the pension sponsored by the corporation is one part of the solution. The other part of the solution is life insurance. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, again, I don't know if you have show notes, but you can link back to our conversation about life insurance and pensions before the pension benefits act governs the taxation of pensions and how they work and what you're allowed to do with them. The tax act governs RSPs. The tax act also governs insurance. Think it's section 148. Life insurance is when you're young, it's for contingencies. But when you get older, there are products and there are types of insurance that have an investment component, a cash value. That cash value is effectively a balance fund that is managed by a, an insurance company. So it's going to get a, you know, kind of an average return, et cetera, but it's tax sheltered. And the proceeds of that investment account and the death benefit. And depending on the type you buy, that you you can see very clearly how those are related, or they're all wrapped into one. But those products allow you to get rid of some of the problems we discussed in that sort of corporate torpedo scenario of deemed disposition plus dividend distribution, which gets you that 60% tax rate. So the pension is one idea. It gets every year, I'm going to take 30, 35, 40, $45,000, put it in my pension. Potentially, I mean, we can also mention the RCA is another vehicle. That right. we'll do. I was going to say the third yeah. one was the so, RCA. You know, the pension is like I'm, but I'm using sort of tiers. So tier yeah. one is your IPP, PPP pension. Yeah. The second tier from a pension point of view would be the RCA. Yeah. Beside that, you can have an insurance policy. It protects your family, but it also plans for your estate. Yeah. It also helps you reduce taxes, et cetera. So there's, 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 and there are uh, operational tax savings you can make understanding as tax rates change, what is the right thing for me to do? Is it income this year? Is it dividend? Is it a little bit of both? Am I over 65 and I don't need my professional corporation anymore? Can I deregister it? And can I add my spouse as a shareholder? And now we can split income. So there's a there's a variety of different operational tax things we can do on a year-over-year basis that also allow us to defer this. Uh, sorry, to eliminate or reduce the taxes on deemed disposition and or distribution after there. All of what we've spoken about are either the problems and challenges you face in personal and corporate combined planning or the opportunities that we have in personal and corporate combined planning. You know that I give talks on financial literacy. At the end of my talk, I always put one slide. And this slide is for physicians only. Well, maybe not. Physicians, dentists, uh, ev- professionals who incorporate it. Like you said, if we just incorporate and did no planning, that's step number one. Step number two is create a pension that will solve some of those problems. Step number three is create an RCA, 
retirement compensation arrangement, which solves a little bit more of those problems. And step number four would be the insurance, which solves a little bit more. So when you combine incorporation with pension, with RCA, with insurance, you can solve not all, but most of your challenges that you've developed over the years. Now, those challenges that you've developed over the years also means that you've done well, by the way, <laughs> because you mm-hmm. only have those challenges because you've done well, yep. right? And so let's let's not forget that, you know, by the time we get to those problems, they're sort of good problems to have because you've done well, but there are nonetheless problems that, that you face in estate planning and also in tax planning. Thank you very much, Jamie. We've took a long journey starting from deemed disposition and ending back at deemed disposition. And so I think we've talked a lot about concepts. I I think that most people will have to listen to this podcast like four or five times just to understand the different concepts and how they play with each other. But I, I thank you for spending the time with us. One last question. If there's something burning on your chest, you must say to the audience right now, what would that be in relation to everything we've talked about? What what one key message would you have? I think I might have two. Absolutely. So the first one is, at the very least, what you what you asked of like what we talked about, what you kind of grilled me on today. That's a good primer for uh, how you should be engaging your professionals. If you don't take away the knowledge of this meaning you either, you don't, I think everyone has the aptitude. This is not beyond everybody, but you have to have the aptitude, the interest and the time to really understand this stuff. So if you're not there or you don't want to be there, at least take the, take the Coles notes and go and challenge your planning professionals, your tax professionals, and make sure that you have explored all of these opportunities. By exploring the opportunities, do not just get a, we don't do that. That doesn't make sense. That's never the right answer. You should have some evidence behind why these things are or are not the right answer, why they are or are not problems you need to think about. But it is simply not the case. And and the reason I say that is, and maybe this comes, maybe this is the thing I want to get off my chest. Many professionals have opinions about whether these strategies work or not. The opinion of your tax provider, the opinion of your insurance specialist, investment advisor, or planner does not matter. They should be able to prove it to you with facts that are specific to you not just this is the way the economy works or this is the way the tax system works and I don't do this or we don't do this for our clients. And I think there is too much of that advice going on. For example, uh, and I won't. it doesn't matter, I'm not going to pick on this person by name, but I have an accountant that I work with and uh, they don't believe CPP is going to exist when they retire and therefore they don't want to pay any income themselves or for their clients. And so they advise dividends only. So those are two massive leaps that are not evidence-based and they don't apply to everybody. And I think that that is not the right thing to do. So be careful. And so these concepts today should be, you should not have to know about them, but there should be an evidence-based rigorous process to test whether these things are opportunities you can take advantage of or not or problems you may have or not. But absolutely, it should not be based on an opinion or just an answer. I love it. I love the fact that you challenge that you challenge um, the opinion. Uh, we can have opinions. I can have an opinion. But in, in, unless I've got fact or data or some calculation to back it up, it is only my opinion. 
And my opinion is different than yours. What what says that mine is better? Actually, nothing until I can prove it to you. So I love that. I love that. Thank you very much, Jamie. We're going to end our podcast here. So have a nice day, everybody, and uh, hope to uh, uh, engage with you guys next time. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice. 